Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Alexandre Lacazette lance Martinelli, il est plus rapide, Martinelli, le but de Gabriel Martinelli Et voilà l'esprit de conquête des gunners se récompenser dès l'entame de la deuxième période is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra as always with James from Gunnerblog. James, good morning to you. Good morning to you too, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm okay. Bit disappointed, obviously, that we didn't make the final. Bit disappointed with how last night played out, but I think in some ways it's given us some clarity about what needs to happen during the rest of this window and what we need to do in order to maintain some of the progress that we've seen so far this season. So I'm trying to grasp at some kind of of positive from all this. How about you? Yeah, it was definitely deflating. I think there was a big build-up to the game, wasn't there? Especially with how the first leg went and not mm. playing the derby, the kind of us-against-them mentality that's uh, been fostered within the club. I mean, watching it, I was pretty glad we didn't play the derby, I must say. Um, you know, if, if I look at how uh, the, the sort of lack of sharpness that we saw from, I think, mm. a lot of our first-team players, and I think that might have been, even if we'd managed to get them out on the pitch on Sunday, um, I think they would have been as far from yeah. their best... Were you a bit surprised by some of it? Because look, I think we can um, we can all understand that when Tommy Asu is brought back in, he hasn't had a training session. I, I, you know, this idea that well, they're not in the training pictures. You know, is there a bit of subterfuge going on here? Where we're keeping yeah. things is literally they're not in the training pictures because you know they they weren't in training. So when Tommy Asu, who's been carrying a bit of an injury, who's who's worked really hard this season, comes back in and isn't quite at the level you expect, I think we can all understand that. There were mm. some other players I think who 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 don't necessarily have the same um safety net in that sense. Uh, and we haven't played for a few days. It's a week since we played the last game. So was the lack of energy among some more, um, when I say established, I mean players who, who have been fit and who have been playing week in, week out. Was that more of a concern, I guess? I was surprised. I, it's not what I anticipated. I thought we'd see a more rested Arsenal come flying mm. out of the blocks. But I'll, I'll share. So after any game, but particularly after a defeat, I always make a couple of calls or send a couple of messages and sort of ask, you know, what's the mood like? How are the players? And what came back last night uniformly was people saying to me, 
they're looking forward to a break. And I guess people have varying degrees of sympathy with that, especially given that we missed a game on Sunday. But I do wonder if we're looking at a squad that is relatively shallow, that's kind of... (laughs) There's there's uh, an understatement, I guess. Well, yeah. But I mean, even in terms of who's actually picked, you know, it's kind of 13, 14 players, maybe 15 players who have played, even though they missed the derby, more than most teams during the festive period, having the Carabao Cup Mm. and filling most fixtures. Um, And sort of the physical and mental strain of that and the stress of COVID. You know, a lot of these players didn't really have any sort of Christmas because family members had COVID or might have had COVID and there's the pressure and the uncertainty of don't catch it, don't get ill, don't miss mm. a game. And the the kind of overwhelming um, response last night was this slight sense of we just need to get through this Burnley game in a few days' time because then mm. players get a fortnight off. I think they're going to be given some proper time off um, to go away or spend time with their families to rest and recuperate. And I think it could operate as a real reset point and a kind of mini pre-season as it's intended to for this squad. Um, But yeah, there was just a general sense of kind of uh, physical and mental fatigue that I think we saw maybe in the performance. Yeah, we did. And look, it's, it's hard not to draw a line between, you know, the the shallowness of the squad, as you say, the small yeah. pool of players that we pick from generally, which has been made even smaller because of some of the departures in this month and some of the circumstances, which, you know, I think plays into the, the Thomas Partey decision last night, which we'll come to, obviously. Um, you know, not having uh, depth places a physical stress on on the players, you know, mm-hmm. the inability to rotate properly, conclusively, you know, to to give players a, a bit of a rest. The workload has been um, fairly intense, but still, we had a week off. And um, I know that there are players like Smithrow, like Tommy Asu, who've, who've had injuries and who are hopefully maybe coming out the other side of them. But but in terms of match fitness and everything else, just, just aren't quite there. Um when it comes to the team and the team selection last night, I mean, Tommy Asu was back. That's good news. Smithrow back. That's good news. It means that we can, you know, put out a, a midfield of sorts um, with Martin Odegaard alongside Albert Sambi Lokonga. Um, you know, it was probably as strong as we could put out in, in the circumstances. And we did start pretty brightly, I thought. I thought Martinelli down the left-hand side was was very good, caused them some problems early on, and we had that moment where, where Lacazette, uh, the free kick hit the bar. It turned out to be a good save, actually, um, from uh, did it. Cuevin Kelleher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it didn't look like it. And then they showed a replay where you can see clearly that he gets a little um, fingertip to the ball and pushes it uh, onto the bar. But after that, Liverpool really started to to get on top and and the the lack of energy or or semi-final oomph that we were missing became quite apparent didn't it It did I mean obviously they were missing their two stars in the wide attackers Mane and Salah but I thought in the other areas of the pitch particularly they really mm. dominated and I thought they won their battles um 
I suppose it's not a huge surprise that that happened in the middle of the pitch. I, I know that we had Smith Rowe and Odegaard back, but it's still far from Arteta's preferred setup in terms of the midfield. We did try some interesting tweaks. I mean, when Odegaard played there before, he played on the left hand side, kind of dropping more into that left back spot. And mm. in this game, he was on the right, which I think makes more sense. He, he, he tends to do his better combination play on that side. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, I wasn't surprised that kind of Fabinho and, and Henderson had the run of that area. Um, and I thought particularly in their half, you know, the sort of trio of Fabinho, Van Dijk, Canate really uh, were domineering over Lacazette. Um, mm. I mean, Van Dijk and Canate, I've got to say, close up, I was in the ground last night in my season ticket, are massive. I mean, they they look they make uh, Gabrielle look slight. Canate uh, in particular is mm. just absolutely huge. Well, he only and came next... on at half time, didn't he? Right, yeah. right. So well, that explains massive... why I was I was looking at him so much because he was in the second <laughs> half at my end. Yeah, but um, they was Matip injured. I don't know what happened, but they, they took him off at half time. So. Oh, I thought, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, but. Next to them, you know, Lacazette uh, really struggled to yeah. make an impact, I thought. I, I agree. I agree. Um, but, I mean, he wasn't next to them a lot of the time. That's part of, you know, a yeah, frustration true. I have with Lacazette is that that sometimes he is just too deep, um, which doesn't give us the outlet. Um, and, look, our best chance of the game really came from him actually being in the centre-forward position. It was a great ball by Albert Sambi Lokonga over the top. Nice control by Lacazette. I really think he should score there or at least hit the target, trouble the goalkeeper. It was a it was a poor effort on goal. But it shows you, you know, what you can do when you have somebody in that position. I mean, there was a point in the second half where, uh, you know, he picked up the ball where you would expect the right-back to be, basically on halfway, hugging the touchline. Maybe it's instruction. I, I don't quite know, but... It's been a feature of his play, which I think is, um, yeah, it's not always helpful when you don't have any kind of outlet up front, even if you're going to struggle to get change out of Van Dijk and Matip and, and Kanate, these guys who are big and dominant and physical and everything else. You still need somebody up there. And I'm not sure this sort of him dropping deep is always so Martinelli can find that space. I think it, it just... Um, is something he does a bit too frequently. We might talk about what that means for the striking position and everything else in a couple of moments' time. Just but, uh, on that, yeah. I, I was just going to say that I think it, it can work and has worked, and I, I'm sure it mm. will work again. I think the key is to get Martinelli and Saka on the ball or at least sort of on the run in dangerous mm. areas quickly. And I'm not sure we did that even close to enough last night. I mean, there weren't many times in the game, from my perspective anyway, where Saka got the ball in a position where I thought, go on, you can really hurt them here. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, and that is our game to me, you know, that we have to get those guys. I mean, Martinelli, I thought, had a really good game and Klopp was full of praise for him and I completely understand why I thought he was brilliant. But in terms of sort of the passes that picked him out and found him early, I felt like, I felt like most of them came from the goalkeeper. Yeah. When when we had the ball in possession, uh, and maybe this is down to the absence of Partey, the absence of Shaka to an extent, but it, I, it just felt like to me like we almost sort of 
didn't know mm. how to play. You know, we kind of went out to the fullbacks, got squeezed, came back into the centre backs. We struggled to make those passes through the lines to advance the play quickly it seemed to me anyway yeah look and look Liverpool are really really strong in central midfield I know they played Curtis Jones in there but he also had Jordan Henderson and uh, Fabinho in there with him you know so when you have a young midfielder you know I've seen uh, Sambi come in for some criticism look I don't think he was particularly great as as a number of players were but in that central midfield area you know he doesn't have that that sort of support or uh, experience to augment him in any way. And I think Martin Odegaard was absolutely fantastic last night. I thought he was great the way he moved the ball. He actually moved the ball quickly. Odegaard mm. and Martinelli were the two players last night who really looked up for it and capable of contributing something. Um, but around them, you know, there just wasn't enough. Saka, I mean, Smith Rowe coming back from injury wasn't really at the races. I thought Saka looked a bit tired he didn't have a great night usually he wins a lot of duels on that left hand side and he didn't really win a lot of them last night so he couldn't turn and he couldn't drive towards goal and he couldn't really create the moments that that he's capable of like I said we've talked about and then we're missing sort of penetration from full back as well because I think Tommy played a little bit conservatively is maybe not the right word but as somebody who um isn't quite match fit, probably wasn't as swashbuckling as we've seen him at times this season. And Kieran Tierney, I don't know. I, I really like Kieran Tierney, but there are just occasional games where I look at him and think there's just maybe a lack of composure at times at moments when we could probably do more with the ball he just fucking lumps it downfield. Like there are times where you need to put it in Rosette. There's times you just need to, to, to absolutely leather it downfield to ease some pressure to help you get organized. But there are other times with Tierney where I think that that um, decision making could be a bit better. And last night was one of those nights for me. Yeah, that's an interesting point of view. I hadn't uh, thought about that specifically with relation to last night, but I can't argue with it. I mean, I love our fullbacks. I think they're great. And for where we are, uh, I think they've been really positive for the most part of this season. But if you look at the opposition fullbacks in this game, Mm. um, there is a level of class, I think, that is above uh, ours, potentially, in terms of the execution. I mean... Saka had a difficult night and I do think a lot of that is down to Andy Robertson who I thought was um, really, really good. You know, we always look at our players understandably mm. but he he won that battle, that 1v1 battle quite comprehensively. Um, Trent Alexander-Arnold's just a sort of weird diamond player, isn't he? In he's terms of what he yeah. offers from that position. I mean, he's sort of a Danny Alves kind of freak. Um, yeah. I don't think you can replicate that really but... Um, yeah, so I, 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 uh, listen, Arsenal have shown in the Manchester City game that they can um, give a good contest to really elite opponents, but we need everybody to be at the very top of their game in order to do that. And that wasn't the case uh, on this occasion. I agree with you, Odegaard was good. And actually, it's interesting when you watch players' body language he he was trying to inject kind of urgency. And mm. He seemed very frustrated that 
Lacazette and Smith Rowe weren't pressing higher up the pitch when Liverpool's centre backs had possession. There was a lot of kind of waving up the pitch to yeah, yeah. all his teammates. Um, he he looked like a bit of a leadership figure on the side, and I'm not sure everyone stepped up to match him. Martinelli, as we said, certainly did, but I think pretty much everybody else in the Arsenal team you could make a case that they were below par. Yeah. So let's talk about the the goal, I guess. The first goal. Mm-hmm. It's one of those where it's maybe a rusty Tommy Yasu gets nutmegged and then a rusty Tommy Yasu slips a little bit. But I, I think when you look at how the goal, how the ball goes in and goes over the line, I have a strong feeling that the Arsenal defenders will look back at the tape of that, and uh, defenders and goalkeeper as well, will look back at the tape of that and think, fuck, we should not have let that goal in because it was too easy for Jota to get a shot away. I think the mishit shot absolutely bamboozled the goalkeeper because he was getting ready based on where the ball was, based on Jota's, um, the position of his body, what the angle was, he was. I think Ramsdale was uh, expecting a shot down to his left to be curled towards mm. the far corner, and he sort of mishit it off his heel and it bobbled in over the line. It looks terrible for the goalkeeper, and I don't think it's brilliant, but it's just defending plus keeping plus a little bit of um, uh, unfortunate slippage in the moments before it. Uh, it still feels like a very soft goal to concede in a semi-final. Yeah, the build-up from Liverpool to get the ball to Jota is pretty good, but I think it's too easy for him from that point mm. on. We've spoken about Tomiyasu not being um, sharp, and I think you saw that in that moment, even though Jota is a very, very difficult player to handle, um, seemingly, especially for Arsenal. And I think the goalkeeper will definitely be disappointed. I mean, ultimately, I haven't actually, because I was at the game, I've not seen the replay where you can see the degree to which he scuffs it, so maybe it is very misleading the way it comes off his foot but if it's hit very powerfully or if it's hit right in the corner then you kind of say fair play Mm. no questions asked the keeper but it's sort of neither of those things so I think he'll definitely be disappointed with that one what else I mean there wasn't a great deal on the bench for Arsenal and we talked about that second half chance for for Lacazette Um, yeah which I, which looks a decent chance. I've seen that back. I mean, yeah. in the moment, I thought, oh, how much time has he got to get the shot away before the defender comes across? I mean, I think if he's, you know, I, I feel, I feel like saying he could do better there. I'm not sure he can, but I, but this sort of notional centre forward who's a yard quicker, I <laughs> would definitely do better. It's his body shape when he's taking the shot. He's sort of leaning back. Right. Um, I think anyway. Um, so that's why I think he can do better. I mean, uh, I think Lacazette is capable of doing better in that position. Um, but yeah, we could talk maybe about the striker thing in a minute. But the second it's half, a great pass by the way. It is a great pass, one. isn't it? It's really, yeah. really good. And it's not the first time we've seen that pass from him this season. He's definitely got that in his in his locker. And look, he's a he's a fairly raw young midfield player who's definitely got some some ability, but. Um, he he produced that last night. I think we should have done better with it. And it's not qu- quite a sliding doors moment, but you just wonder if early in the second half, if we get an equaliser, the 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 sort of way that would have re-energised 
the performance, oh, the team, the fans, all of it, because it was going a bit the way we feared it might go. Um, Liverpool were a, a bit threatening. I think uh, Konate hit the post, didn't he? Something like mm, that. Um, yeah. You know, they did have a couple of goals or one goal ruled out for offside as well. So there were there were some threats from Liverpool, but that moment where you could be 1-1 and all of a sudden, you know, you have the confidence of a goal and all of that energy and what it might have done to the performance. Look, we're, we're speculating, obviously, but um, yeah, it's a disappointing miss, I think. Yeah, um, I'm watching it again and you're right. He is leaning back. I yeah. mean... Why he gets that degree of height on it, I don't know. He can even, if he is a bit quicker, can probably take another touch there. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm not saying that to kill him because I sort of think we we know who he is, you know, absolutely. And I think as we'll get on to, it's about finding mm. someone who has a more uh, rounded skill set. Yeah. So needing to change something... We, mm. we bring on <laughs> yeah. we bring on Eddie and Kedia for Lacazette, which I you know I've no real issue with, but I think it does you know really hammer home um, what we've got to do in the striking position. But we mm. also brought on Thomas Partey. Um, so hindsight is a wonderful thing. What was your feeling at the time when? you saw Thomas Partey on the bench and Mikel Arteta talk about how he landed at midday, he was in touch, he came straight to the team hotel, he wanted to be involved, he wanted to help the team after what's been a difficult week, I guess, for him at AFCON, Ghana going out, it's got to be hugely disappointing, physically quite tiring, he's on a long flight, he's come in, but what was your feeling when you saw him on the bench? Were you like, "Uh uh-oh, or were you like, hey, you know what? Fair fucks to him. This could be quite good. I was really impressed that he made the effort to get there and said, I'm willing to be on the bench. I mean, from what I hear, he moved Helen High Water to get back for this game. And I don't think it was a question of one flight. Mm. I think it was quite a protracted journey to get home and to get home as soon as possible. And I think it speaks to his professionalism and commitment that he was willing to a do that and then b make himself available for selection um so i was very surprised when i saw him on the bench but uh and and i didn't know if we'd see him used to be honest i Mm. wonder if he might just be making up the numbers but when he came on i mean i i have to be honest and say it felt like the if we were serious about getting back into the game it felt like the change to make um you know when you looked at that bench Nketiah and Partey were the two really Mm. unless I'm missing someone obvious who I thought Mm. could improve or could change what we were doing and and particularly in the middle of the park I thought you know he had been really missed um so I didn't and it was the 70th minute was it before he came on 74 75 something like that so you know I kind of felt if he'd been asked to do half an hour or 45 minutes I would have had real concerns but I kind of thought 15 minutes I reckon he might be okay Um, obviously hindsight being 2020 it panned out pretty disastrously for him yeah what do you think about I mean, his involvement? I I liked the fact that he wanted to be involved and he wanted to help the team. I, I can't 
be critical of that. And I think, you know, you could say, look, here's a guy who's coming back from AFCON, all this travel, he's come straight off a plane. This is not a good idea. And, you know, under normal circumstances, I don't think there's any way you throw a guy in in those circumstances at all. But they're not normal because we don't have any central midfielders. We've let Ainsley Maitland-Niles go. And clearly, one of the knock-on effects of Granit Xhaka's red card last week isn't simply that we had to play with 10 men at Anfield. And what that cost us from a physical perspective is that we felt like we had to take this gamble, this risk with Thomas Partey last night. Because I think if Shaq is there, I'm not sure we we do that. I think even with his willingness to help, we'd we'd say, look, you know, come back, have a good warm down, and get ready for Sunday and and Burnley. But Shaq's absence, Shaq's red card, meant that we kind of had to. So I I understand it from Mikel Arteta's point of view. Like we had nothing else on the bench. Eddie and Kedia to try and get you a goal. I mean, that's a slim chance in a game like this, against opposition like this, against defenders like that. Mm-hmm. So what else have we got to try and change it? Like, we, we're we trying to get a place in a final. It's a semi-final against Liverpool. I understand that it's not wise, but I can also understand why we made that decision. And like you say, in the end, it turned out um, pretty disastrously. I think the first yellow card is absolute bullshit. It's really so not. What was it for? Because I have to say, in the foul. stadium, everyone was turning around saying, what was the first booking? We Basically, he, whatever Liverpool player it was, I can't remember who it was at this point, but it's one of those where he just sort of knocks the ball and Partey makes a move and the guy goes over. There's no real contact. It's not really a foul. It's a free kick, no question, but it is not a yellow card by any stretch of the imagination. Right. The second one, though? Yeah, 100%. Very yellow. Very, very... Dark yellow, as Arsene Wenger would say. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it it was borderline red, um, which I guess when you look at it now, you can say maybe that's just the kind of challenge a guy who's who's really tired might make, even if he's only been on the pitch for, for 15 minutes. I do think a player of his experience ought to know better about you know, when to make a challenge like that in a game like this with the scoreline the way it is. I mean, there's no way we were getting two goals uh, in the final couple of minutes. So you can be critical of that, but probably my override, me personally, my overriding feeling is that we took a risk, we took a gamble, it didn't pay off. Um, mm. But but for the most part, I'm appreciative of Partey's very obvious commitment to the cause to try and help his team. Um, you know, you can argue it's the manager's job to to say, look, thank you, we appreciate it, but this isn't the right way to do it. But I can also understand why in a game like this, with a paucity of options available to him, he kind of thought, okay, let's give it a crack. What's the worst that can happen? And that's the worst. Yeah, and I mean... I'm with you. I'm with you. I think it speaks to his commitment. And bear in mind, he and his Ghana team are, you know, being vilified probably in their own national press after a really disappointing AFCON performance. He's come back to Arsenal wanting to put that right, wanting to help the team into a final. Um, 
again, it's really not panned out for him. But uh, it's it's costly. It's really costly because getting him back for Burnley felt like a real bonus, mm. a real boon. And, um, you know, were it not for red cards, we would have both him and Granit Xhaka available in that game. Yeah. And now we have neither. Yeah, that's um, that's an issue that we'll come to, I think, because we do have some some questions on that. So, do you second goal? Second goal, slightly unfortunate in that um, Martinelli slipped and lost the yeah. ball. Alexander Arnold, it's a great pass, and and Jota. I think when we talk about Liverpool and when we talk about how good Salah and Mane are. I think Jada is is really an excellent player who's developed extremely well at Liverpool. I think he's a really, really good player. It's excellent movement, great touch, great finish. Maybe what he would have done last week if Shaka hadn't kicked him in the nipples. So, yeah. you know, it was a very good goal. Maybe you could look at our defenders, our defending. We tried to play offside. He kept himself onside. Smart movement from a, a very, very good player. But at that point then, it was... You know, it was done and dusted, really, wasn't it? It was. It was. And I think uh, I agree with you. Jutta's always been a difficult player for Arsenal to handle, even when he was at Wolves and wasn't necessarily a regular in their side. I mean, mm. he came in and out of the team, but whenever they played us, he was in and he was very dangerous indeed. Um, his record against us is, is quite something. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, they completely killed the game, obviously, and, and killed the, the crowd too. Um, Linesman did his best for us, but uh, sadly, yeah. sadly, justice prevailed and the goal stood. Um, yeah, I think, you know, look, good pass, slightly ragged line. <sighs> good finish, really, as well. Yeah. Um, so there you go. I mean, they absolutely deserved their victory. Uh, they were the better team on the night. Um, it's just disappointing because we did so well in that first leg yeah. to give ourselves a fighting chance uh, more than a fighting chance in this leg um, but we needed to be at the top of our game and we just weren't no we weren't and you know to 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 lack that something in a in a semi-final is you know it's disappointing in a second leg after the first leg after everything that's happened in the last week where it felt like the the ingredients were there for a kind of for a really energetic performance um mm. even if one or two players coming back we might have understood that they weren't going to be quite there you were looking for some of the others to carry them and looking for some of the others to provide that bit of drive and that bit of impetus you know we, we talked about Martinelli, we talked about Odegaard. I think those two in particular really did try, but there wasn't enough from other players. There wasn't enough uh, from the collective. It is it is a, a, a real disappointment. And I think it just really, to me anyway, reinforces the need for greater depth and quality in this squad. Like, I don't think 2-0 against Liverpool over two legs is is any kind of a disgrace. Um, but we keep having these moments where, okay, are we within touching distance of teams like this? And I think we have made progress, but when you go out of two co competitions within a couple of weeks of each other with performances that are kind of similar, I got, there are myriad reasons as to why 
we lacked some quality and lacked some uh, energy, etc. But ultimately, I think it boils down to a lack of options in in key positions. Um, mm. And I'm not saying we should have three great strikers and five brilliant central midfielders. I don't think that's realistic. But I do think if they're looking at this game and they're looking at where we are now in January and they're looking at what we've got ahead of us for the rest of this season, they have to see that there are key problems or key issues that can only really be solved via the transfer market this month. Um, So, yeah, that was my sort of main takeaway from this game is that there is still work to do when it comes to squad building. Yeah, I mean, last night was a missed opportunity. And I think if we go through January without strengthening the squad, that will feel like a missed opportunity too. Mm. Um, There's a very clear task between now and the end of the season, 18-game gauntlet, basically, in the Premier League to secure European football. Um, That's it, isn't it? 18 games in what? How many weeks have we got? Between now and the end of the season. Well, we've got this break coming up after Burnley, as discussed, where we have two and a half weeks until Wolves, uh, which is our next game. So one, two, three, four, five, uh, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. I mean, maybe 14, 15 weeks between now and the end of the season. So, you know, as a schedule, 18 games in 14 weeks, whatever it is, 15 weeks, Mm -hmm. isn't hugely taxing physically, you would like to think, particularly as some of the other clubs are going to have to deal with with Europe and more postponed fixtures and and everything else. So, Yeah, we we get a couple more players back from AFCON as well, let's not forget. Um, The less discussed Mohamed Elneny and Nicolas Pepe. Who's scoring goals, looking like he's having a bit of fun. Yeah, playing well Mm. uh, for Ivory Coast. Um, yeah, I, I've looked at his recent finishes and thought, you know, you, you can't help but toy with the prospects of him playing a prominent role in what remains of the season, as unlikely as that may feel. Um, so, yeah, it's a clear task and I think a, a clear chance to try and strengthen in, you know, we've got, we're talking about final 18 weeks, but why are we final 10 days of the window? Mm. Um let's see where we can get to. I mean, the areas that we're talking about, centre-forward and centre-midfield, I think are really obvious. And, you know, Thomas Partey, Granit Xhaka, they've both come in for different degrees of criticism this season. I think what's obvious is that without them, there is a significant drop-off. And that's not to criticise Sambi Lukonga, who is a, a really interesting player and... Personally, I thought had one of his better games yesterday. Um, people may dispute that, but I thought he played really bravely and you know showed some quality at times. But there's a big gap, I think, from him mm. to even Granit Xhaka. Um, and Arsenal would benefit so much from a true third option yeah. in central midfield that they could rotate in and out and pick and choose that would feel like such luxury at Mm. this point given uh, you know the the state of the squad right now all right well look i don't know that there's much more to say about um last night so what we'll do is we'll take a break there are plenty of questions so we'll come to those and more in part two right after this 
This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the ArsCast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnerBlog and at ArsBlog. Also on the ArsBlog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an ArsBlog member on Patreon, where you get all the other stuff as well, preview podcast, Discord chat, uh, and all the rest of it. Some good stuff coming up too in the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm going to go first, if you don't mind. And this is a question uh, that comes from Chris Evans. Not that one. Uh, who's at CW Evans 91. This is based on a story that you did during the week um, for The Athletic where uh, you report that the the FA are looking into a yellow card received by an Arsenal player in a Premier League fixture this season amid concerns over suspicious betting patterns. And Chris says, should we be at all concerned by this investigation into a suspicious yellow card and betting fixes? We don't have any details of what they're looking for, but it's not a good thing to be associated with regardless mm. uh, you're all about to witness a fun game called James tries to answer question without contravening law or something <laughs> uh, that saying wrong thing um, should we be concerned I think we should I think we should because the integrity I mean obviously of Arsenal uh, matters to us enormously but of football um is incredibly important and the reason mm. that so much money is placed on betting in top flight premier league football stems from a belief that it is straight fundamentally um as much as we might not feel like it sometimes with referees uh you know that is a conviction that many people hold about the sport and even you speak to people within the gambling industry as i've had to about this story um they'll tell you you know football is pretty straight it's pretty clean in terms of fixing and things like that especially when compared to some other sports um so it does matter and i think uh, this story is alarming because the fa would not be looking into this matter unless it had been uh, raised to them by people with great experience in this field who are used to looking at situations like this and assessing their validity. What is your understanding, in as much as you can say, of, of how the FA became aware of this and who 
might have been reporting it to to them or or have had concerns about what they've seen well i think um there are independent bodies that um look at these uh matters uh, you know that that operate sort of that mm. govern uh, the gambling industry i think certainly gambling companies betting companies themselves are uh, attuned to what they would determine suspicious betting patterns. And mm. when they observe those, and particularly when they observe those with a, a kind of a correlation of something eye-catching or that doesn't look right to them on field, um, then they act upon that. Um, mm. So it, it starts from, from the gambling industry, essentially, who... As I say, are pretty have a pretty level-headed and optimistic view in general of football and its cleanliness. Um, you know, Mikel Arteta said after the game last night that kind of this kind of thing happens all the time. That's not my understanding. I don't think it is too frequent that uh, a yellow card such as this is investigated uh, to this degree. Mm. Um, so I, I have to be honest and say that I am uh, worried about it just because, you know, we all... It matters to us all, right, that this that the game has its integrity in that respect. Um, and if it doesn't, that's a, a very troubling thought. Yeah. The, there but, are very strict rules, aren't there, with regards uh, players and staff at football clubs being involved... In betting, uh, yeah. or or even um, tangentially, you know, we saw what happened with Kieran Trippier um, when he uh, friends of his put a bet on after. Mm-hmm. Could you call it inside info or insider trading? I'm not 100 percent sure, but obviously it was linked back to him, and he was handed a a a ban. Um, you yeah. wonder if you know that's a transfer. That's not something that impacts the integrity of a football match, really. Whereas yeah. this particular incident, even if in the context of the game or whatever happened subsequently uh, or previously to the card didn't have any real impact on the result of the game, it's happening uh, as part of the 90 minutes. And therefore, it feels like something like this, if it were proven, would be much more... <sighs> damaging and therefore the punishment might well be more serious. Yeah, I mean there was a bit of precedent with the Lincoln City defender Bradley Wood. Um he was found to have mm. been intentionally getting yellow cards and was banned for 6 years in 2018. Um you know, it, it, essentially uh, any kind of footballer involvement in uh, betting on and games that they're involved in is is very problematic and would be taken very, very seriously by the authorities. Um, and and to be clear, you know, the point that's been made is that the, in the first instance, what's being looked at here is the suspicious betting activity. You know, so mm. the amount of money laid, where that money's come from, how atypical that is um, in context if that then is found to have a connection to somebody operating on the field, 
be that a player or an official, of course, there would be very serious yeah. repercussions for that person. Um, as an Arsenal fan, I very much hope that the investigation uh, finds all parties on the footballing side to be completely innocent. That goes without saying. Yeah. Um, that is the outcome that we want to happen. Mm. And um, I, I really hope that is the case. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, to, to be as trans- transparent as possible, the conversations I've had with sort of industry people about this who understand, who see these incidents every day, who know what looks right and what looks wrong are uh, alarming conversations. So I do think we're right to worry about it and for it to um, be something that we discuss Mm. and and consider. But equally, you know, the FA have said they're looking into the matter, um, whether that proceeds to something more formal or something disciplinary. We just have to wait and see. And my experience of these matters is then don't develop particularly quickly. Um, maybe some time before we know the outcome of all this. Um, it might be bubbling away in the background. Mm. But, uh, yeah, it's, it is important. It is important. Um, I don't know. Do you have any reaction to it? It's difficult, isn't it? Because you don't have all the details. Yeah. You can't discuss all the details. Exactly. I mean, like you, I, I hope that it's not true because, you know, even if you could try and dismiss it's just a yellow card or whatever it is to be involved with for any player to be involved in something like that really does damage the integrity of the game but also Arsenal that player um and if it's proven it's 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 going to be very unfortunate so i hope that it isn't the case i hope very much it isn't the case i do think as well that there are wider conversations that are beginning to happen about gambling in football and the mm-hmm. the how pervasive it is, how ubiquitous it is. Um, I, Philippe O'Claire um, has done some amazing work on this for the Josimar website where, you know, links to... Sorry, James, what's that noise? Oh, sorry, that's me folding a piece of plastic. <clears throat> oh, sorry. I'll stop doing it. That's okay. I was just wondering, it's like interference on the line. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Philippe has done some good investigations into how even though betting is regulated in the UK, it's fairly easy to uh, transgress some of those regular... Transgress is not the right word, but to, um, yeah, to sort of legitimize things which don't look that legitimate, you know? Um, And betting companies which don't exist in the UK or you can use in the UK are sponsoring football clubs and there is a big, big conversation to be had about how much betting is in ingrained literally into the fabric of English football these days. Like you cannot move, you cannot watch a game on TV without the yeah, get your bets on home, bloody Ray Winston. Get mm. your bets on now. <clears throat> yeah. You know, and if it's not Ray Winston, it's some fucking zany twat fucking doing some other ad, you know, for the billions of betting companies that are out there. So when it is that close and when it's that closely associated with the game, it becomes even more tempting or, or easy to exploit. Um, so I think there are wider conversations to be had, but with regards to this particular incident, I, I hope that it's um, 
it it proves unfounded. Um, and that's as much as I can say about it until such time as we we get more information. Yeah, me too. And and it's like you say, betting is very pervasive in sport and in football in particular. Mm. Um, and and a lot of the time, the assumption is that. Uh, that no player would become involved with something like that because it's sort of not financially beneficial really enough. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't make enough sense given the exorbitant wealth, you know, the huge salaries they make. But I think the Kieran Trippier case is quite an interesting um, example in that respect, in that... It's not the player who's benefiting. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and actually the, the, the manner in which he did it and sort of tipped off uh, the people involved. I'm paraphrasing here, so forgive me, but was quite, um, it was quite inoffensive and gentle in some ways. You know, I think it was like in a WhatsApp group and his mates were going, give, you know, give us a, a, a winky emoji if you're going to Atleti, that kind of thing. Yeah. But, but nonetheless, um, you know, the, the authorities took it appropriately seriously mm. Um and I think, you know, that shows that they are prepared to be pretty hardline and, and throw the book at people here if they feel there has been a transgression. So sort of whatever the yeah. motivation might be. So we, we, we'll have to uh, wait and see. And like I said, fingers crossed, um, it is just, uh, you know, a, a big outlier with no ulterior explanation. Yeah. Do you mind if I go next? Because I, I want to get onto this subject and then I'll open the floor to your questions. But we had... Uh, uh, a lot of questions about discipline in the wake of Thomas Partey's red card. It's the 14th red card that Mikel Arteta um, has presided over during his, his relatively short time yeah. in charge. And uh, on the Discord, Mr. Whiteside, Mr. Wrightside, in fact, says, Morning, fellas. Do you think the disciplinary record under Arteta is getting out of hand? And in what way, if any, is he culpable for that? While Grand Control on the Discord as well, uh, he says Arteta's Arsenal have had, well, 15, uh, it's 14 uh, red cards since he became manager. The nearest team is eight. Is Arsenal's mm-hmm. ill-discipline problem something cultural that Arteta is responsible for? Or have we just happened to have a disproportionate number of red cards magnets on the playing staff and he, he cites uh, David Luiz and Granit Xhaka who you know let's be fair are red card magnets they've done their fair share they've done their fair share more than their fair share um, it is a pretty extraordinary statistic isn't it yeah for uh, yeah. that many red cards is it 14 sorry now it is 14 yeah um, following in the good traditions laid down by Arsene Wenger so I, I'm going to take a particular stance on this, which which may or may not be correct, but I've been turning this problem over and over in my mind. Why are Arsenal getting so many red cards? And I think when you look at the kind of red card magnets, Shaka and Louise, you get some clue and insight as to maybe why that might be. I think that you can present this as a disciplinary problem, and I have no doubt in some respects it is. But I also think there's a very good case that this is a technical and physical problem. That if you are quicker and a better tackler, then this happens less. And for me, Shaka and Louise kind of embody that. You know, I've watched Mm. all Granite Shaka's red cards recently. 
We think of him as a guy who completely loses his head and gets into needless confrontations. Only one of his six red cards, as far as I can recall, was really for that, and that was the Burnley one, yeah. which which came um, as a consequence of a confrontation that happened because of a Shaka challenge that was <laughs> hang, hanging a leg out and stopping a counter-attack. Uh, when you watch it back, a lot of the time, he's slow to get there, and he jumps because he can't make up the ground on foot. Similarly with Louise, you know, he was quite culpable of kind of last man tackles, as was Shaka against Liverpool. Is it because he doesn't trust his sprinting ability mm. to get him back into the position? And I, I think when you look at this team and you look at the way in which we win the ball, do we have enough pure sprinters who back themselves to get there first without leaping in? And do we have enough people who you could say comfortably they are a good mm. tackler? And I, I would say maybe not. I think that's very fair. Um, I'm trying to remember all of the red cards. The only two I can think of that were like real losses of discipline were the Xhaka one against Burnley and Nicolas Pepe against Leeds, where he yeah. sort of fell into the trap. Um, what was the guy's name? Alioli. Alioski. Something Alioski. like that. Yeah. Alioli. Yeah. <laughs> but, Not as tasty as that. No. Yeah, no, no, no. But the rest of them, I think, you know, have, have been clumsy. I think a couple of them have been, I think a couple of them, more than a couple have been harsh. But when you talk about Shaka there, I did a recording yesterday for something that's coming up on Ars blog in, in the, the coming weeks. And the issue of Granit Shaka came up and the issue of his tackling came up. And it's related to that red card that he got against Burnley. Remember mm. the one where he, he, like he kicked the player, took him down. One of those where you say, yeah, take the yellow card. And it was a red card. And nobody's ever seen a red card like that before or since. Mm. It was probably the first instance of the, if that was Granite Xhaka, um, index raising its mm. head. But um, Arsene Wenger's comments about him. Now, remember, this is five years ago. It's January 2017. And Arsene Wenger said, he's not naturally a great tackler in his decision-making. I think he's quite intelligent on the pitch, but it's more the way he tackles that is not really convincing. He doesn't master well the technique of tackling. I would encourage mm. him not to tackle, to stay on <laughs> his feet. That's the best way to deal with it. Tackling is a technique you learn at a young age. You can improve it, but when you are face-to-face -face with somebody, it is better you stay up, right? So mm. that's five years ago. We're talking about Granit Xhaka not being able to tackle. Um, so I think there is some real truth in in what it is that that you're saying. Like I don't, I don't feel like we're a dirty team. I feel like we can be a little bit clumsy at times, sometimes a little bit slow. But I also feel as well maybe we're just an easy team to give a red card against. Yeah. And I don't know how you fix that. I genuinely don't know how you solve that while remaining competitive and aggressive and front-footed. Maybe it is just a question of getting guys who are quicker and more athletic and who can get to the ball first and who, instead of making a foul, get fouled. You know what I mean? Maybe that, mm -hmm. is, maybe that is the difference. It's the physical profile of the players. But right now we have a, a, a reputation as a team which picks up a lot of red cards and in some ways it's self-perpetuating 
and I I don't quite know how you fix it with some of the players that we've got, but we we have to we have to play more games with eleven men because it's not just about what it does to you in in the game that you're playing with ten men. It's how wrecked you are afterwards because of the effort that you've got to put in. Like, well, you know, go back to what I was saying at the start of the show. You know, about the players feeling fatigued and worn down. I think if they were finishing these games with eleven men, that would be alleviated somewhat. It's not sustainable. I do think it's sort of self-perpetuating. You know, we have that reputation now. Mm. Everybody's seeing that graphic. Everybody's seeing those numbers. Um, What's another Arsenal red card on top of? Uh, the, the ones that we've already mm. got. But I do think that that kind of profile of player is part of it as well. And it's interesting, you know, we talk about central midfield and it looks like Arthur Mello is still the target there. Um, but if it was up to me, I'd be looking at someone who was a real sprinter who could, you know, a lot of Shaka's red cards have happened when he's had to go out to the channels and mm. deal with people in wide areas. You mentioned that Burnley one. Arguably, the Man City one earlier this season was the same, sprinting out towards the touchline, never going to get there, leaps to try and make an extra yard. If you've got a guy who's a yard or even two yards quicker, which isn't that difficult when you're talking about Granit Xhaka, Mm. I think it would be incredibly valuable to this team. Um, And I think, you know, that is on the agenda at some point, but maybe more for the summer, but I'd be looking to do that as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah, we had lots of questions about red cards, so I'm just sort of siphoning those off. Um, now you've got none left. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. Uh, this is a question from Josh, Josh Robinson, 87. He says, I'm really confident of a top six finish now. Yes, we have a good opportunity of getting the top four, but do you feel excited like me at the prospect of playing in Europe again next season, even if it is the Europa League? Um, for, in the sense that, like, I think I've missed European football this season. I'm not sure it's we've had the squad that would have been able to cope with it mm. this time around, but I've missed the midweek action and missed the sort of build-up and all the, you know, all the stuff that goes on around games, which is, you know, the, the life and soul of this particular Arsenal party that we're all involved in. I would, you know, obviously prefer top four, um, I don't see any way of us getting top four without some spending. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a conversation that we've had, you know, a number of times. So I don't know that we need to really go over it again or, you know, it's blindingly obvious at this point. You know, we need a striker. We need a midfielder. Um, I don't think we need to do that question to death. Would I be excited? I mean, the one thing I would say about if it was the Europa League next season what it might do is allow us to develop the next generation of academy players who are beginning to come through. Because I don't know that you can marry European or Champions League football with that development kind of thing. So that's the only really interesting thing to me about the Europa League group stage is the quality of the opposition normally allows you uh, a, to rotate and rest some of your best players, uh, which, again, I don't think we could do this season if we were in Europe, but it does allow you to blood young talent. And and when you look at Ainsley Maitland-Niles, Joe Willock, Reese Nelson, Eddie Nketiah, Bakayo Saka, Emile Smith-Rowe, 
players like that. Mm. The, they owe their the, development to the Europa the, League. The Europa really. League was like a, a, a foundation course for them in a way. So that's what the Europa League would mean the group stages and then you get to a knockout stage and it starts getting more interesting because the teams start getting better and ultimately a it's a european uh trophy to play for and b if you win it you get into the champions league so uh, where we are now you know with, with the sort of top four wagging its arse at us and we're trying to hang on to it a bit it might feel disappointing to be just in the europa league if we only finish in the top six but I think we could take that as a measure of progress, um, maybe not quite as much as we would like, but still certainly progress. And then what we could do with that competition next season, um, I think would be really interesting because I think the other aspect of it is that it would have to, or it would require Mikel Arteta to, to manage a slightly bigger, deeper squad of players Um and I think this season there's been quite a deliberate move towards a much, much smaller squad, a much smaller core group of players, which I don't think you can really sustain, not in Premier League terms, because we're seeing some of the impact of that now, and certainly not if you're competing in Europe, because you know while we talk about developing young players, you still need to give them some sort of support, right? You can't just throw out 11, 17-year-olds on the pitch and expect them to, to, to really learn from that. You do need some of the senior players, squad players to be involved in helping in that regard. So that would be another mm. aspect to, to it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think if we get top four, um, we're ahead of schedule. And if we if we get top six in Europa League, mm. we're probably on schedule. That's kind of how I see it. Um I think it would be really beneficial that competition for a, like you say, for for players who we consider part of the first team squad now, but who don't get loads of game time. You know, you'd think of people like Sabi Laconga and Nuno Tavares. I think it'd be a really mm. useful thing for them to play those games. But then there's a generation of academy talent behind that as well. You know, think of players like. Uh, Balogun, Charlie Patino, Amari Hutchinson, you know, it could be really valuable for those mm. guys too. Um, I have a kind of bigger thought about this, which is uh, is definitely controversial at this point in time. Okay. Which is that I've read some great articles recently about Manchester City's procession to the Premier League title. A really good one by Ken Early yeah. in the Irish Times and Miguel Delaney. Um, as well. Uh, I'm sure Man City fans believe the Irish are very much out to get them. Miguel wrote something in The Independent. Yeah, we, we hate them. We hate them. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, that's the thing about Man City. I'm not convinced anyone really hates them because they're sort of quite uninspiring sort of from an emotional perspective, yeah. despite their brilliance. But it is a bit of a procession in the Premier League this season. And I think in general those huge financial beasts of Manchester City and Chelsea and perhaps you could even count United among that, although their incompetence does prevent this slightly, end up at the top or there or thereabouts when it comes to the Premier League. Mm. And I I do worry that with nation states and the like um, beginning to flex their muscles more and more in English football, that may become a more perpetual problem. Um, and then I think for other clubs, the discussion becomes, 
you know, what, what does success look like? I mean, we talked yeah. about that after the Newcastle takeover. And so, um, so that where I'm going with this is that although I completely understand the derision with which we treat something like, um, what's it called? The, conf- the, the nation's conference or something like that. If you are, um, a Premier League club that's not a nation state. And I think that these signifiers of progress, be it top six, I mean, Arsenal certainly should be aiming at top six. I'm not saying this is right for Arsenal, but, you know, if you're uh, beneath that, if you're Wolves or whatever, getting into the Conference League, like we, we look at it as a joke, but I think increasingly with time, it will come to matter because if you can't win the thing, then the sort of signifiers of success begin to mean more. Yeah, I mean, it's tied in with expectation, though, as well, isn't it? Because, yeah. like, if, you know, with all due respect to Wolves, they don't go into a Premier League season thinking, we can win this. So mm. that competition is not one which um, finishing... Uh, how am I trying to say this? Like, you know, not not winning the title isn't a failure, Mm. Whereas, you know, a top 10 finish or finishing in the top six or seven to get into Europe is probably a success. Um, so I know I know what you're saying, and I think most people would share those concerns that the gulf between the, the financially huge clubs is, is, uh, is problematic for future success, if you like, or the potential mm. for future success. But that then in another way, makes it probably more important that now you really do make progress. Because That's true. The if, window is open. Yeah, exactly. Still, it's slightly about. open. So you can... Uh, I don't want to necessarily use Liverpool as an example, but you know they're not um, run by a nation state. And they've had some windfalls that they've invested very well, and they've got a very, very, very good manager you know, who's come in and done an amazing job there. But without that huge financial backing that City have, that Chelsea have, that United have, and so on. So there is some evidence that if you build, you can get to a point where the the level you're at, um, I don't mean you can sit still, but it becomes self-sustaining in a way. That if you get into a certain uh, stratosphere, you can keep going because you can attract good players because you've got money, because you're in the Champions League, because you're going far, because you're commercially more attractive and all of that kind of stuff. So I think th- I think that's where we are now, where this window in which we can make progress, unless something radical happens to the ownership structures in English football, it may be our last chance to put ourselves in the kind of bracket where we can talk about not finishing in the top four as as um, a failure. Because otherwise yeah, it's I, going to be a closed shop. Uh, exactly, exactly. And, and, and who knows, if we, if we don't do it now in five years' time, mm. our sights might be very different in terms of what we're talking about as success. But I, I think... You're absolutely right. And if, if we look at the spending that Arsenal have done, and mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure a lot of people are saying we spent a lot of money in the last chance window, and I think that's true, and we're talking about potentially spending a lot of money again in January, that's the reason why that's happening. It's not because you know, Stan mm. Kroenke suddenly cares more if Arsenal win <laughs> or lose football matches, or yeah. you know, he's not caught up in the passion of it all. It's because they know if 
if we invest at this point, we have a chance to secure a financial foothold for the club that could be very valuable. Mm. Um, and uh, the opportunity is there. And I think you make a great point. In some ways, time is off the essence because if things continue to go the way they're going and, and money keeps pouring into other clubs, it's going to be more and more difficult yeah. for us to talk like we have a kind of uh, a right or a realistic possibility to be at, at the top end of this table. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you a question now, which is actually a bit tricky for you to answer, but I just <gasps> really want to get it on the show. Is okay. that okay? Yeah. <laughs> so it's from Luke Antonio, Antonio, sorry, Luke. And Luke says, what can an Arteta actually do? Oh, no, that's not the question I meant. Sorry, Luke. <laughs> it was about red cards. But it's good for you to get your name on the show anyway. This is from Yeslin. This is the one I right. wanted to do. Uh, Luke, um, Luke is gutted now. So near and so far. <laughs> Basically, Luke said, what can Arteta do to reduce red cards? Oh, we already um, talked about that. By so different yeah, players. Yeah. Uh, Yeslin, um, not related to the performance, but how about a question for the club on the dangerous, chaotic scenes outside as thousands of fans surge to get in because of delays called by, caused by digital passes not working. So many were stuck outside for up to 30 minutes after kickoff. Shambles. Um mm. And I, I just want to talk about this because one of the things we, I was really buzzing about last night was the atmosphere potentially, you know, yeah. with everything that's gone on. And I have to be honest and say that it, at kickoff, it was not quite where I expected in terms of the sort of fever pitch. Um, and it's because the stadium wasn't full and it wasn't close to full at 7.45. And there are lots of reasons why. 7.45 is always a bit like that. I don't know if there's a sort of psychological thing. People think the game's at eight. It's sort of too close to the end of work to get to the pub and get to the game. Carabao Cup games are sort of infamous for this because oftentimes there's a lot of fans there who don't regularly attend and uh, maybe aren't as accustomed to the kind of entry process. But the club did everything they could, I thought, to get people in the stadium early. They did a buy one, get one free offer on beer in mm. the concourse before the game. They sent a text message out on the day, I believe, encouraging people to get there early. Um, nevertheless there were people still coming into the ground, as the question says, up to like 30 minutes into the game, which is a real shame. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting because on our Discord, um, Lowy133 was saying, text message and email saying, arrive early and they're not opening until half past six. So they usually mm -hmm. open two hours before. He was outside waiting to get in to get one of his uh, buy one, get one free beers. And I don't think he was alone in that regard. So I, I wonder, was was that a, an aspect to um, it? it Maybe feels there were some pretty big cues when I got there. <clears throat> and that was, a, um, just trying to think, about seven, six forty-five, seven, And there were already big cues, which you normally would only see yeah. in the sort of 10, 15 minutes before kickoff. I mean... Look, there are a couple of technical things. You know, the club did check quite a lot of COVID passes last night. I had my COVID pass checked. Right. Um, it looks like the regulations are going to change on that relatively soon. Um, so maybe that will speed things up slightly. The other thing is that Arsenal have implemented this season the kind of digital season ticket. So yeah. instead of having a card, you can have it on your wallet on your phone essentially and i actually lost my 
real life wallet a, a couple of weeks ago so i don't have a uh, a card at present i'm waiting for arsenal to send me another one and i was trying to scan in on my phone and it wasn't working and oh. i wasn't alone in that and there were a number of us who had to be taken off to the side have our kind of uh, tickets checked and then let through one by one so if it, other people are having that experience that slows it all yeah. down i mean even even you know you've got a card in your wallet and you don't even need to take the card out of the wallet to for it to buzz through um yeah. You know, but then, okay, hang on. I've got to get my phone. Oh, fuck, what's pa- password? Oh, the fucking fingerprint thing. Exactly, oh, what the yeah. fucking fingerprint? Yeah. Okay, here's my wallet. Where? Oh, shit. It's a very that? good impression of me Where last night, Where is actually. my wallet? There it is. Uh, okay, click it. Which one is that now? Uh, yep. Okay. Oh, fucking thing. I got right. Jesus Christ. <laughs> fucking, it's gone, lock, gone on lock screen again. Oh, no, I don't want to fucking update this. What are you mm. talking about? Fuck's sake. That kind of thing. Which turns like a a two second presentation of a card in a reader into like a twenty thirty forty second fumble with your phone multiplied by hundreds slash thousands of people. Yeah, I know even a thousand, even if one thousand yeah. of sixty thousand. I mean, are in I know, I know that like it's supposed to be super convenient for us all to have everything on our phones, and in some ways it is. But there are real world <laughs> examples of you know sometimes a piece of paper or a physical object the size of a credit card, which is, you know, no impediment to anyone to carry around and not expensive to produce or to uh, to dis- uh, send to all your season ticket holders or members is really still the best way we have of doing that. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, mm. so, so that, there were a lot of reasons, but ultimately um, it was a shame because it meant that we didn't quite get the fervour pre-game that yeah. I was... Uh, hoping for and then by the time some people were in you know Liverpool were ahead so um, I mean that's crazy because that goal was 20 minutes in you know yeah yeah so I'm sure that um, there were also quite a number of empty seats I have to say last night so it was a sellout so I, I guess what you're seeing there is people who may be still contracting COVID or isolating and they're not able to attend mm. um, that might be an explanation but the the speed of getting people into the ground uh, is tricky at the moment with the additional checks that are going on and with these digital elements. And hopefully that can be sped up sooner rather than later. And, and maybe opening the stadium earlier might facilitate that, as you suggest. Yeah, just a couple of quick ones then to finish. Um, I, don't, I don't need you to answer this one uh, <laughs> necessarily. Let me see if I can find it here. Where is the fucking window for my thing? Um, it comes uh, on the Discord, no, on the Patreon from Emily, who said, uh, do Klopp's comments on Martinelli make you happy, annoyed, scared, or none of the above? Or scared or annoyed because he could be laying the foundation for a possible offer to replace Mane or Salah. And he was very complimentary about um, about Martinelli yesterday, uh, unprompted as well. But uh, on the Discord, jmart91 says, Hi, gents. I know, I know you'll get a lot of bad mood questions, but to give a positive, are you as continuously impressed with Martinelli as I am? He looks uh, like a top Premier League quality player now and not just a youngster. Yeah, I, I thought he was brilliant, actually, I have to say. I thought he was really excellent. And it's not the first time that Klopp has praised him unprompted. No. I think if you go back, there was a Carabao Cup game at Anfield 
where I think he said Martinelli, what a player. I mean, what I would say is Klopp's got a type. Mm. Uh, and Martinelli fits the bill. <laughs> Doesn't he? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I remember Klopp speaking about Richarlison when Richarlison first came to the Premier League and was at Watford and he was similarly full of praise for him. And, you know, there are parallels in terms of being a, a wide attacker who's full of energy, full of running, very direct. I mean, Klopp plays with two of those in his team every single week. Um I don't worry at this point. I think it's great to see him blossoming and becoming a star and starting regularly, contributing regularly. Um, so, no, I don't worry about it at this point. I, I I think it's a good thing. What about you? No, not worried right now, but clearly, you know, if we don't get to where we want to go to, the vultures will start circling around our, our best young players. And that's, you know par for the course that's how that's how football works but I I really liked Martinelli last night as I've really liked Martinelli since he came into the team and Mm -hmm. I do wonder it might be an imperfect solution but perhaps when we get players fit again when we've got some options in the wide areas where you know maybe Nicolas Pepe has played himself back into the manager's thoughts between now and the end of the season based on what he's doing in AFCON when Saka has a rest, when Smith-Rowe has a rest. If we can't get the striker we want in this window, I would be very tempted to give that job to Martinelli for a period to see if if he can do what needs to be done there because... I don't know what's going to happen with Aubameyang. There's some offers and loan offers and and everything else. And I I found the whole... His return from AFCON and the various comments that have surrounded it a little bit confusing in Mm. that there doesn't seem to be a great deal of consistency from from Gabon, from Mikel Arteta about what's happened and what exactly is the reason for his return. So I'm, I'm just not sure. We've talked about Lacazette. We've talked about Enkedia. Balagoon is out on loan. Who else have we got? If we can't get the player in the transfer market, do we settle for some kind of loan deal or do we do we look at this guy and look at what he can do and how he can do it and think, well, maybe the time is, or the solution is to repurpose um, Martinelli. Like, I think I would rather see us do that than fudge the striker transfer, if you know what I mean. Like just I agree, settle, actually. settle for something that, well, we really need a striker. This isn't quite who we want. Let's just uh, let's just do it and hope it works out. I'd rather wait for the summer and give that a go than than half arse this this really important purchase. As much as I really think we need a striker in January, I'd still I'd still rather do it that way. Yeah, I think I agree. I think it's too important a purchase, really. And you don't want to be lumbered with the wrong guy. Mm. And actually, I think in Martinelli, and I think you have to say in Aubameyang, we do have internal options for yeah. that position that we are not using in that position. Um, I mean, there's and- nobody else wide at the moment, so that's why Martinelli... Sure, of is course. It, is but there? I mean, yeah, yeah. Emil Smith Rowe is back now, and 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 is a, a potentially 
I mean, yeah, if you start all four of Saka, Odegaard, Smith, Rowe, Martinelli, you know, you've not got a wide player to come on, really. But, um, yeah, I'd be intrigued to see it. I'd be intrigued to see it. There were, there were times watching the game yesterday where I thought, if we could switch Martinelli into centre-forward, it might be the best thing for this team. Yeah. It, like, in the course of the game, you know, I was thinking he would offer us something there that we've that, not that, really got. That challenge on the goalkeeper... Mm. which, you know, is always going to be given as a foul. But just being there and being that physically proactive, I really liked it. I really liked yeah. that he just went up. He, like, he knew he wasn't going to get it. He knew he was going to get, uh, get a free kick given away. But, like, here I am. Here I am. Fucking deal with me. Not just sit off and hang out on the halfway line and not threaten anybody or trouble anybody. We need a bit more of that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and his ability to bring a ball under his spell when it's mm. travelled 60 yards over his shoulder is pretty yeah. incredible as well. Yeah, I presume himself and Ramsdale are doing some work on the training ground in that regard <laughs> yeah. because it's... One stands at one end of the pitch, yeah. one stands at the other. Wasn't well, there like a brilliant video of, um, I can't remember, it's probably two Barcelona players just lumping 60-yard passes at each other they were bringing down out of the air and just like trap, volley it back, trap, volley it back. Um it's a bit like that. I think that they're obviously working on it. And it's a good idea because he has the ability to, A, control those passes. Um, and it gives you something a bit more dynamic down that left-hand side for defences to deal with. So, yeah. Right. Definitely. Right. Well, look, we'll leave it there. Who knows what kind of a team we're going to have for Sunday against Burnley, assuming that goes ahead. Do we, have, do we have any updated information on the likelihood of this fixture going ahead? Because there were some concerns during the week, weren't there, about Burnley and their ability yeah. to get a team together? Do we have any well, updates? I still haven't that? heard anything from Burnley in that respect. I mean, obviously, they cancelled a game in midweek. We'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, it's one of those where, you know, you feel like it probably wouldn't be the worst thing again for Arsenal if it didn't happen, just given their own midfield issues. Mm. Um but equally, uh, you know, it's a good opportunity to go into the break on a high. I think even with the absentees, mm. you know, Burnley have really struggled this season. We're, we're clear favourites in that one. Uh, and I do think, you know, it's just about getting through that and then yeah. regrouping. And who knows, perhaps even coming back with some some additions uh, in a few weeks' time. Well, fingers crossed. All right. Well, we will be here on Monday to talk about the Burnley game, assuming that it goes ahead. Uh, over on Patreon, we will do our usual preview podcast, myself and Lewis Ambrose. You can join us over there at patreon.com forward slash arsblog. For now, though, uh, enjoy your Friday, enjoy the rest of your weekend, and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. <laughs>